Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey, Jim. Hey, John. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to uh, episode 110. What? Hang on now. Hang yeah. on. Hang on. I knew you'd catch it. You were not going to get much past you. Last episode was episode nine, and all of a sudden we're all up to 110. Did you did you miss 100 episodes? I, 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 well, I want to talk to you about your coma. It was, we were, feel, we were so scared. We thought we we're going to lose him. It's like when Star Wars suddenly became episode four. It's, it's just it's like that. that. It's that I just, yeah. It is confusing, I was looking, and, it, and it makes people angry. Well, that's I, what's going to happen. Let's, let's diffuse the anger as quickly as possible. I was looking right. ahead to season two when we'll be doing the bullet catch, and I realized that if I wanted to name each one of those episodes, number them to correspond insofar as possible with the chapter numbers, uh, I was going to have to restart our counting at one, which you can do, but it would be a little tiny bit confusing for people, even though it would say season two, number one. It doesn't say that right away. It just says it's episode number blank. So I changed, went back and changed the other nine episodes to, they're based on a 100 system. So it's 101, 102, 103. And this is now episode 110. Do you think that there's going to be a whole bunch of people who are now scrambling around saying, I love this podcast and I have missed 96 episodes. And I would like to, how do I, where are those? You're going to be inundated with emails. I bet you George Lucas reaches out to you and says, "Again, what happened? No, he can't because I blocked him. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah, I had to block him. Because he owes me just, money too. Yeah, he's just, oh man. You what a think. pain. Yeah. But anyway, I don't want to, let, let the lawyers sort that one out. Please. Anyway, so this is episode 110, and uh, this will be our second half of our Dick Cavett interview. We got some interesting responses to the first half. Nothing negative. We got a nice email from Mrs. Cavett, who was very oh, pleased with it. That's nice. But one of the, one person said, why? This is your ninth episode. Wouldn't you open with Dick Cavett? Why do you save Dick Cavett for number nine? And the reason simply is when we can, we want to tie the guests to a topic within the chapter. And within chapter nine is when we met the mystics who are all old magicians who had appeared on TV. So that was why Dick Cavett fit well there, just like why the opening chapter one had Rob Zabrecki. And we talked about the Houdini seance and talked about being a skeptic as opposed to not being a skeptic and all that. So whenever so, possible, we're going to right. tie them in. Other than the numbering system, there is a method to our madness. There is. Now, occasionally we're going to run into uh, a chapter where there isn't a specific topic we want to hit. For example, uh, next episode after this one, Julie Eng is going to talk about growing up in a magic shop, which is just sort of in general something that uh, that Eli's had to deal with. And there are a lot life. of people in the world who grew up in a magic shop. Julieng is one. Later in the season, we'll be talking to Liberty Larson, who also grew up very intense in the world of magic. And sometimes it'll be something a little more tendential. We've got Jay Johnson coming up to talk about his friend, Harry Anderson. And the genius. Spirit, genius. Both and the, of them. Yes. And the spirit of Harry Anderson is very much found within the character of Harry and also throughout the books. And plus, Jay just had great stories about Harry Anderson. So. Some chapters will have a very specific connection to the guests and others will be somewhere in the ballpark. Exactly. Exactly. So today we have Dick Cabot part two. Part two. Which was just great. Uh, We won't spend a lot of time telling people what they're going to hear. We'll just let them hear it. I I will say that he hit topics that we didn't think he's going to get to, which was fun. And uh, we even got to talk about Groucho. Yeah. And I I wouldn't hang up until he talked about Groucho, let it be known. Yes, but he brought it up on his own. Yeah, he Uh, did, because that was, and it was great. It's great. But mostly uh, this little one is going to, this episode of uh, Dick Cavett, we're going to talk a lot about um, him having magicians on his show. Exactly. That's exactly where we're headed with that. And uh, why don't we just jump into that and we can talk about the people he talked about afterwards. Like you said, we wanted to focus on the magicians he's hosted on shows over the years. And because he's so good at that, that sort of led up to my very first question. What did you know that other TV people might not have known about the best way to present magic on TV when you had these legends on your show? Well, luckily, I knew what they wanted, what they needed, what they performed, what were not to put a camera, if you see what I mean. For example, that something a magician doing certain 
manipulations at a table like the great Slidini did on my show. You don't want to put a camera to one side of him. That's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah. But I, I knew sort of things. So because magicians had been screwed badly by inept appearances on television by people who didn't know magic and didn't know, as in this example, not to put a camera to the right. <laughs> yeah, there's video of uh, at least one of Slidini's appearances on your show on YouTube. And I, I noticed that not only did you put the camera in the right place, but I don't believe there's hardly a cut ever to even to a reaction shot. It's just the camera's locked down. Slidini does his stuff. And it's as if you were sitting across the table from him. Yeah, it was it was done live without any editing, which was just people would suspect. And people who saw him just said, I didn't know what magic could be until I saw Slidini, who with coins and cards and cigarettes and things just performed miracles one after the other. And it was a great thing because he was a big, great success. I mean, he was known in the magic world as an idol and uh, genius, but he hadn't ever been on television. Uh, well, oh, he had been once in Italy. Mm. And he swore off television for life. How did you how did you then get him to be on your show? Well, I met him by sheer accident. I was going to see Doug Henning's Evening of Magic on Broadway and going backstage there in the dressing room was Slidini. Wow. And I chilled all over. And he said, you decover. And I said, yeah. He said, maybe I'm going to do your show. And I brought me two. And as they say, then they brought me two more. And I, uh, I said, would you? And he did, did this stunning appearance. And the next day, for the first time in his life, he said, I go to my store to buy a paper. They say, oh, Mr. Slidini, we saw you on the television. And uh, it added another dimension to his already successful career. And I had him on several times after that. He just loved it. He was just tremendously wonderful magician and a nice man who taught magic and shepherded kids into their introduction to card sleight of hand and coins and so on. So it was nice that I boosted the already successful career of Slidini by putting him on television. That's incredible. I took a few classes from one of Slidini's students, Jim Cellini, who, God rest his soul, has passed away since, but uh, yeah, it, to be in the room with Slidini or on television with Slidini must have been so amazing for you. When I saw him in Doug Henning's dressing room backstage, it was like to me then what Woody Allen said the first time Sid Caesar walked into the room when he was a young man, worked, got a job on the Sid Caesar show. He said, it's like seeing a god. And that's the way it was that way when I saw Sid Caesar, too. But uh, that's how it felt when I saw there is Slidini. We're in the same room. There's nothing but air between us. <laughs> wow. By the way, I see you have involved with Steve Cohen. Yes. Yeah, we, we chatted with him a couple of weeks ago, and we both have had the, the pleasure of uh, seeing his show uh, back when it was at oh, the Waldorf good. before okay. it moved. Did he do the cat, the kettle, the magic? Yes. Yes. Like just an yes. Old Yes. Poured drink called for any drink. <laughs> it's one of those tricks. I don't want to know how it's done. It's exactly. so amazing. Really. Me too, because it is a fact when people say, oh, my God, I'd give anything if I could know how you did that. And you learn quickly not to tell them, not to be mean, but because the only reaction you get, oh, is that all it is? <laughs> yep. oh, Eddie Murphy offered me $10,000 to show him how I did a certain trick. <laughs> And I couldn't take it. I just couldn't. It was a floating dollar bill. So you had, you had it sounds like, the, the pleasure of having a lot of your heroes in Magic on the show. One that jumped out for me right away was uh, that you got to see Ricky Jay early on. This is, this is odd timing. I, I thought of Ricky Jay yesterday and got sad all over again. Ricky Jay was a young man who mastered sleight of hand magic. I, I saw his Woody Allen and I went to see him on the show in New York one night. And afterwards, he said, let's go to a restaurant. And do you know one near here? And somebody said, yeah, why not this one? We went in there. About eight of us, other young magicians were eating. And uh, suddenly, the one of the waiters came over. And he said, you, you're magicians. I, I wonder if you'd be interested in this. It's an antique deck of cards. And he had this valuable 
antique deck with different designs. And I don't know if it had the four suits or five or six suits, really an old collector's item. And Ricky took it and he said, this is a wonderful thing. Do you mind if I just, you know, shuffle it and play around, do a couple of flights with it? He had someone at the table select a card from the antique deck, took it and surprisingly threw it at a bottle that was sitting on the table. When they picked up the cards that had scattered all around when the deck hit the bottle, the chosen card was inside the bottle. Oh, my goodness. I've never known how it Somebody else I know went, went with him once out in the country and they got lost and they didn't get to the place they were supposed to go to. But they so they went to a restaurant. Nobody knew. Sat at a table, ate. Somebody pointed out that somebody's derby had been sitting on the table all this time. And Ricky Jay said, is that your hat? The guy, yeah. Do you mind if I touch it? No. Ricky picked up the derby sitting there and under it was a five pound block of ice. Figure it out. I love Max Malini. That's fantastic. It's 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 Max Malini come to life. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Did you and yeah. uh, did you? I, I'm going to just skip back to something because I'm curious about it. Uh, after you met Mr. Carson, and then he, of course, went on to the Tonight Show, and you had your show. Did you two maintain a friendship? Did you talk magic? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Johnny was one of the most uh, sort of. Uh, incompetently social people I've ever known. He was so uncomfortable with strangers. He had a hard time with them. In fact, when I worked for him, I would sometimes make a point of going out and after the taping and the audience was coming out. And if anybody saw Carson or rushed over to talk to him, I went over and helped him get rid of them nicely because he was so miserable having to talk to people like that. And people would say, you're crazy. He talks to people all the time on his show. Yeah, that's easy. But in real life, hard for him. He, he, he liked me seemingly more than was likely with him. And one night, the year he died, we went together to a restaurant in Los Angeles. And we talked for maybe two and a half hours about magic and other things. His love of magic really came across when he had magicians on his show. He was a really, it seemed like, it seemed like he was a really good audience for a good magician. Do you think that's, was his secret? He he was just a good audience? Well, he really, really loved magic. It was a real part of his life. And yes, he was, he he, uh, loved every magician he had on and reacted perfectly to them and new things to ad lib that contributed to the success of the appearance and magicians loved, loved going on with him. Um, but he, he really was a terrific performer of magic. Shame he didn't do it more publicly. He did the floating cane once on a television show where a cane floats in the air in front of you and goes around you and up and down in the air. And uh, people were stunned by that, as they would be, as you would in life if the cane did that. He he really liked it. He loved it. He he had a lot of magic books in his apartment. It was a valuable part of his young life. He was socially awkward. And that's what magic does for some kids. It gives them a life suddenly that they didn't have before. And people sing, God. How do you do that? You can see a young kid the first time that happens glow with pleasure. Now, back uh, when you were writing for Carson, are there any magicians that appeared on his show while you were there that you were particularly thrilled to see and to meet? Di Vernon, the, the, the king of the magic world, a magician named Di, D-A-I, Vernon was really the grand old master of the magic world. In his later years, he lived right next to the magic castle. So he would be there every night. And um, I went there one night with Johnny after the show. Johnny said, you going anywhere, Richard? And I said, no, of course. He said, you want to go to the castle? So we did. And Vernon was there as he almost always was. He was really the dean of the magic world. We sat at a table and Vernon recalled great stories of the great magicians that he had known. One of them was the only magician many people can name in history, Houdini. Isn't it remarkable that Houdini is still known to people? Nobody ever says, who's that? Hardly. Even younger people know about it. Anyway, we're sitting there and I said, "How was Houdini likable? And Vernon said, no. <laughs> Carson and I laughed. I said, well, give me an example. And he said, one night I was 
backstage after Harry's show, Harry Houdini's show, and we were chatting and his valet or whatever brought in the shirt for his second show that night. And the shirt was not folded the way Harry liked it, and he smacked the man across the face with the back of his hand. Wow. And then the poor guy left. And Vernon said to Houdini, Harry, you, you can't treat people like that. And he said, I am Houdini. What a schmuck. <laughs> <laughs> if my notes are correct, you went on to have Di Vernon on your show. It's I did, yes. On the same show, I had Doug Henning. Yeah. And uh, Vernon did his, as magicians know the phrase, cards to pocket routine. And linking rings where solid steel rings are examined and then they begin to link to each other and uh, bang one ring against the other and suddenly it's part of it. It's it's linked to it. And and people just faint at the genius of a great linking ring routine. Even a bad magician can astonish with the linking rings if he doesn't drop them or anything. Um, (laughs) But Vernon was wonderful. Jumping back, you mentioned um, a special and... Uh, again, in my notes, it looks like you hosted a, you hosted at least one magic special. Yeah, from the Ed Sullivan Theater in New York. And uh, Ricky Jay was on the first one and threw cards, <laughs> it sounds silly, threw cards into a watermelon. Yeah. It was 12 feet away from him, and he could throw a card with force and a certain grip so that it sliced into the watermelon and stuck there. Not Gene. a trick. Just a genius talent he had for doing almost anything with any object. You had brought up um, Teller, uh, Penn and Teller. They were on your show, I know, uh, early in their careers. What, what, in your opinion, what set them apart, or why did you want them on your show? Well, I, I had seen them, seen their show in New York. Penn and Teller did Broadway a couple times, and I just thought I got to know these guys. So in my pushy way, I went backstage and introduced myself, and we became really good friends. And um, they're wonderful because they've really been an asset to the world of magic. Keller came to my house in the country for a weekend once, and we were standing around in the kitchen. And I, you, you hate to ask a magician do some tricks, so it's that's not part of the decorum of magic. But Teller, knowing that I wanted to see something unusual, said, okay. And we were in the kitchen and he um, said, do you have a sharp knife? And I yeah, I got one out of the drawer. And he poked his finger, it pointed at the end of the finger, fingertip with the knife, causing blood to come out. And it, it, it came out in a sort of a bubble, a solid bubble of blood at the end of his finger. And I thought, this isn't anything I've ever heard of in magic. And he said, you have to be observant about things. And he directed our attention to the bubble of blood that was there all the time, never went out of sight on his fingertip. But suddenly, poking it with the knife, it was a live ladybug, which flew away. Oh, my goodness. I don't want to know how he did that. No. I could not believe my eyes, a phrase that comes up often in the world of magic. So Teller has one on me. I think he would tell me, but it, I, I sort of enjoy not knowing. You know what I mean? It's nice to not know one oh, thing yeah. in magic. Can we talk a little bit about Orson Welles? I know he was on your show. Did he? I don't, I don't know if he ever did magic on your show, though. You know, I can't remember for sure either. I don't think he did. I wish I had asked him to. I think he would have liked to do it. But he was an excellent magician. He did it really. He did a full evening show of magic when he was in his years in Hollywood. He would vanish Marlena Dietrich and that sort of thing. Not every magician gets to do that. No. <laughs> Younger folks will have to have a footnote of who Marlena Dietrich was. But um, yeah, he was really good. He did a large illusions. Uh, yeah, he was really, really good. He wasn't just—it wasn't just that he liked magic. He really, really was good. Did he talk a little bit or, at all about uh, debunking seances with Houdini? I—it I, seems like he I have seance is something I always wanted to go to, where a, a trans medium, for example, would uh, contact the dead for an audience of believers, and Groucho in vaudeville. That a woman came back one stage one night and she said. Groucho, you don't know me, but I wonder, I'd like to give you an invitation. One of the great trance mediums, her name was Ana Eva Faye. She was legendary. She contacted the dead. She was 
dramatic. He said she looked like Margaret Dumont in their movies, the Dowager Lady. Groucho erased his med stash in those days, and so he was never recognizable without it. So he went to this place, and they said, you'll have to be, I hate to have to say this to you, Groucho, but you'll have to be on your good behavior, be reverent. They said, oh, for Christ's sake, I know I'm an idiot on stage, but I can be serious, and I'm interested in supernatural. In front of this audience of believers, the great Anaïva Faye stood there and at one point said, I am now in touch with the other side. Does anyone, does anyone have a question? And from this worshiping audience, a voice said, what is the capital of North Dakota? <laughs> Groucho said he escaped. He, he just escaped with his life. Can we talk about Groucho for a minute? As long as we're talking about Groucho, can we talk about Groucho for a minute? I know it's not completely down our alley, John, uh, of magic, but yeah. here's somebody who was, who was a good friend of one of our mutual idols, yeah. Groucho Marx. Give it's us your favorite helpful. story about Groucho. Well, I really got to know Groucho, and he really was a friend, and we exchanged letters and went to his house and hung out with him. And I, I, I had to constantly pinch myself. But Groucho does have a connection with magic. He went to see Houdini one night, who was one of the biggest stars in the world at that point, and Houdini unwittingly called Groucho and a couple other strange people. Now it's up on the stage. And then he came to his famous trick where he allegedly swallowed a handful of needles, about a dozen needles, put in his mouth. They vanished from his mouth. Then he put a long string of thread in his mouth, swallowed that, and then worked one end of the thread out of his mouth, pulled on it, and out came two or three inches apart all the needles threaded on the thread. But before he did the great trick, he said, um, you know, I, I, want, I want to know that this trick involves my mouth. And in order to do it, my mouth has to be totally empty. So I would like some, one of you people to look in my mouth and see if you see anything. Uh, and he opened his mouth, not knowing who he had opened it to. And Groucho said, when Houdini said, what do you see in my mouth? Groucho said, pyorrhea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Houdini ever quite recovered from that. <laughs> but not. But he didn't think that was funny. That'll teach you to crouch your marks up on stage. No, don't oh, do boy. that. Don't do that. Do you do you still get a chance to play around with magic now? I mean, do you still take out a deck of cards and do some tricks or just for yourself, for your wife, for friends? Uh, I got brought back again to it suddenly one night by Taylor, who took me to dinner in a New York restaurant, and he had invited several young magicians that he knew, uh, and we had a wonderful time at the table as they all did their specialties, uh, and that was great. It, it just, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful hobby, even if you don't go any farther than being a hobby. All right. This has been so much fun. We could talk to you for hours about this. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us about your experiences with magic. An honor and a privilege, sir. Honestly, uh, so great to spend a few minutes oh, you with you. Just to, uh, You'll wonder why I brought Jack Parr up at this point. Oh. He told a story, one of the great roundtable wits, I think it was uh, George Kaufman, and they were at a, some people's house, and after dinner, they had a little girl play the piano. And she played it. And then she played some more. She was probably nine years old. And then she played it some more. And Kaufman said, darling, you're wonderful, but I think you have delighted us enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if I've delighted you enough. <laughs> Not at all. I can be here all day chatting. We could. Thank you so much for chatting well, with us today. Anytime. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> We'll Thank call back in handling. five minutes if you say that. It's true. We would have we would have called back five minutes later. I'm tempted to call a, right now. I know, given half a chance. Boy, uh, he was great. It was really fun, and I got to tell you, I think we may have uh, made history here, being the only podcast that in one episode contains mentions of jump in if I forget anybody here: Slidini, Doug Henning. Steve Cohen, uh, uh, Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy, Ricky Jay, Johnny Carson, Penn and Teller, Penn and Teller, Di Vernon, Orson Welles. 
Groucho, of course. Groucho. Houdini, because you got a twofer there. Yeah, and Jack Parr and, and even George S. Kaufman. The so, great George S. Kaufman. Yeah. So uh, it, we mentioned last time, if you go on YouTube, you can look uh, up and see a lot of his interviews. I, I watched recently one that he did with Groucho, his, his full hour with Groucho, in which he spends most of the hour trying to ask a question about <laughs> Margaret Dumont uh, and just keeps getting interrupted into side stories. But enough about Groucho. Well, I don't know that you could. I don't know that that's possible. Enough about Groucho. If you haven't read Alan Arkin's book, and it's fantastic, and there's a great Groucho story in there. Alan Arkin's book. What book is that? I would have to look up the title because I read it about five years ago. But there's. It's all okay. about you know his. He was in Second City. I don't know. Did you know that? I did not I, know. I have recordings of Alan Arkin in Second City. Well, he was in Second City, and one night Groucho showed up, and the the uh, uh, you know buzz goes through the cast. I'm like, Groucho Marx is in the second row, and they do a, a structure where uh, it's, we used to call it dub uh, in my improv days, where somebody would ask a question, the audience would ask a question to somebody who did not speak the English language, and then there would be somebody would say, well, what uh, this is about, and they would have to translate whatever the character is speaking in a foreign language. Okay. You're right. So uh, they were, it, it, the topic was Russia and uh, Arkin was wearing, he went backstage and put on like a little fedora and the audience was asking questions and Groucho raised his hand. And of course the cast was even afraid to call on him because they didn't know where it would go. And, um, Groucho said, uh, uh, where did he get that hat? And it, that started the ball rolling for the cast because it was so kind of out of the blue. <laughs> and uh, and they, raced, they went on smothering. Uh, Groucho raised his hand and asked, um, it, it, are, there, are there more of those at a store available somewhere here? And that, of course, went on. It just raised his hand a third time. Is he willing to sell the one he's wearing on his head? So, Arkin says it just, we just, all of us completely melted down. We were laughing so hard. We just had to black it out and end the thing because Groucho in three questions completely destroyed a cast of Second City. Well, I will track that down and put a, a link to that book in the show notes. And I will say Alan Arkin is on our wish list to talk to about uh, his work in a movie called Magicians and another movie called Burt Wonderstone. And I've tried to set wheels in motion. Uh, I don't have high hopes. Oh, I but, do. But it can't hurt to ask. Yes, exactly. It cannot hurt to ask. I, I have high hopes that we will uh, get Alan Arkin on this broadcast. Wouldn't that yeah. be something? We might just close up after that. What's the point if, of going on? Well, if he comes on, you're not going to be able to stop me from talking about the in-laws. All try. Right. Just go ahead and try. I will try. Yeah. I have a mute button right here. Okay. Anyways, that was uh, so much fun to talk to Dick Cabot. We hope to have him back uh, at a future time. But now we need to get down to the business of our business, which is the book. The book. Listening yeah. to the next chapter, chapter nine. I'll just recap. Uh, you go find your place in the book for chapter nine. And I'll recap what happened in chapter eight. We I met the Minneapolis Mystics. That's a group of magicians who hang around the bar next to the magic shop. And then Eli attended the memorial for the mentalist Gray, where we got more from his assistant, Nova. Uh, we met another suspect in the murder, Ariana. And uh, Eli once again encountered his crush, Megan, and her soon-to-be ex-husband, Pete. And mm -hmm. then he enjoyed a short but exciting car ride with another older psychic named Franny. And with that in mind, we now jump into the next chapter in The Ambitious Card. <music> The Ambitious Card, Chapter 9 The house was massive, far too big for the lot it sat on. Like an increasing number of houses that overlooked Lake Harriet, it was a McMansion, a smaller house that had been purchased and renovated so thoroughly that not only did it no longer resemble its former self, but it actually looked a bit silly when compared to the surrounding homes. Whoever had renovated this house had gone all out building up and out, pushing the footprint to the very edge of the lot. It might at one time have been a charming two-story colonial-style home, but now so much glass had been added, along with porches, decks, and balconies, that it now resembled a house designed by M.C. Escher on a bender. 
Although not everyone from the memorial service had made their way down the street for the reception, there was still a healthy flow of people streaming in as Franny and I made our way up the stone steps to the main door. As we approached, I could see straight through the mostly glass structure from the front through the back to its view of Lake Harriet and the downtown skyline beyond. We worked our way into the stream of people, and as we entered the two-story foyer, I looked ahead into the wide, open living room, which was lined on three sides with floor-to-ceiling windows. Suddenly, a shadow fell across me, and my view was entirely obscured by something very large and dark blue. A hand fell upon my shoulder, nearly making my knees buckle from the impact. Eli Marks, isn't it? A deep, booming voice said. I looked up to see the smiling face of Morris Bitterman, an impressively large, beautifully groomed black man. He stood about six foot five and must have tipped the scales at over 280. He was wearing an elegantly tailored dark blue suit with a white pressed linen shirt open at the neck. Gold bracelets adorned both wrists and at least one tooth in his smile appeared to be gold as well. He was completely bald. This was a man who made a stunning first impression. That's me, I said, shifting my weight to help maintain my balance. And you're Morris Bitterman, right? His smile, which was large to begin with, grew even wider, possibly because I had pronounced his first name correctly. Guilty as charged, he replied. Then his hand flew up and covered his mouth in mock surprise. I'm sorry. Perhaps the wrong choice of words to use around you under the circumstances. No offense, I hope. None taken. No charges have been filed, and I'd like to keep it that way. I'm sure you would. His gaze moved from me to something next to me, even closer to the ground. I followed his eyes to see that he was looking down at Franny. Franny, don't even ask. The food is in the kitchen down that hall to your left. She darted away without a word and bulldozed her way through the crowd toward the kitchen and the food, quickly disappearing from sight. Morris wrapped a mammoth arm around my shoulder and guided me toward the living room. Let's talk for a minute, he said. A bar had been set up on one side of the immense living room, and Morris ordered two beers from the bartender. He waved away glasses and instead effortlessly clasped both bottles in one large hand. He offered one to me as he directed me toward a huge couch that offered a beautiful view of the lake. The couch was occupied, but by the time we had crossed the room, everyone who was seated there had found a reason to go sit somewhere else. Morris didn't seem to notice, and I suspect that it was a common occurrence for a man of his size and commanding presence. I settled in and looked out at the view. The day was at the tipping point between dark and darkness. Most of the leaves had fallen from the trees, and it was beginning to look and feel like November. A couple of die-hard runners plodded past on the leaf-strewn path below, while a flock of ducks out on the water decided at that moment to decamp and perhaps head toward a warmer climate. The glass walls made you feel like you were sitting outside, although the New Age music playing on the invisible sound system and the hubbub of multiple conversations in the room reminded me that we were, in fact, very much indoors. I saw you on television, Maurice said, settling into the comfy sofa and putting his feet up on a matching ottoman. That trick you did at the end with the knife through the car, that's a good one. You'll have to show me how you did it sometime. I think I may retire the knife trick, I said, at least for the foreseeable future. Prudent choice, he agreed, taking a long sip from the bottle. I took a sip from my own and then got up the nerve to ask the question that had been bugging me for the last 30 minutes. So, what's a well-known former all-star football player doing at the memorial service for a well-known, if somewhat dubious, psychic? He stopped, mid-sip, and for an instant I thought I might have taken a potentially dangerous conversational turn. But then he broke into that wide, bright grin again, and I relaxed, at least for the moment. That, my friend, is an interesting story. He took his feet off the ottoman and leaned forward. It started because I couldn't get a good night's sleep. For love or money, I couldn't. I'd wake up exhausted. I was two years out of the game still trying to find my feet career-wise. I didn't want to end up as a casino greeter or worse, and man, I was floundering. Or foundering. Which one is it? 
In the context that you're using it, I think they both mean roughly the same thing, I said helpfully. Although I'm sure there are people who would argue the point. The same thing? Like flammable and inflammable? Same thing. Well, that's just stupid. Yes. Yes, it is. Anyway, I couldn't get a good night's sleep. I tried everything. He leaned back in the chair, tapping the side of his beer bottle thoughtfully. Let me tell you, a man doesn't appreciate sleep until he can't. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. Amen, brother. Another sip, followed by a thoughtful sigh. Anyway, someone recommended hypnotherapy, and at that point, I figured, what the hell? I called the guy and went in for one session with no level of enthusiasm, and within one week, I was sleeping like a baby. Because of hypnotherapy? Interesting. He surprised me by shaking his head. Nope. The hypnotherapist took one look at me and said I probably had sleep apnea. It's common in men with large necks, which you may have noticed I have. I nodded. His neck was roughly the same diameter as my thighs, combined. But something about hypnotherapy intrigued me, so I started looking into it. And it turned out I had an aptitude for it. Two years of schooling later, I was Dr. Bitterman, which would have thrilled my mother no end, God rest her soul. Then I got turned on to past life regression via our mutual friend, the late Mr. Gray. That's our primary business now. Our? I asked. Yeah, I have a clinic out in Wyzetta and two satellite clinics, one in Rosemount and another one downtown. We've got a staff of about 12 people. And then, of course, there's the online component, which is, frankly, the lion's share of our business. People are endlessly fascinated about their past life experiences, and there are thousands out there willing to drop $29.95 a pop for a little insight. It adds up, let me tell you, it adds up mightily. He looked past me, and his smile widened to twice its size. And speaking of past lives, here's one of my favorite clients, past, present, or future. I turned to see Megan, moving through the crowded room toward us with Pete in tow. Pete was holding two clear plastic cups full of some sort of alcohol, while Megan was balancing a couple of small plates layered high with exotic-looking appetizers. Megan's smile rivaled Morris's in intensity, and when she arrived at our couch, she and the good doctor exchanged as much of a hug as they could given the cargo she was carrying. Morris half-pulled, half-lifted her over me, placing her between us on the couch. Having nowhere else to sit, Pete sat next to me, balancing awkwardly on the arm of the couch, a slightly forced smile on his face. He raised one of the plastic cups in a mock toast toward me and then handed the other cup to Megan. Eli, I didn't know you knew Dr. Bitterman, Megan said to me as she took the drink from Pete. Isn't he the best? Actually, we just met about five minutes ago. We were talking about past life regressions, I began, but she cut me off, grabbing onto my leg with her free hand to demonstrate the intensity of her excitement about the topic. Oh, you have to have him do you, she said. I've had about eight sessions so far, and the stuff we're finding out is just phenomenal. Mind-blowing stuff, really. Past lives? I asked, consciously tempering my ironic or sarcastic tone in my voice. Really? Oh, I know what you're thinking, she said. Most people think it's about finding out whether or not you were Cleopatra or Joan of Arc or Jack the Ripper or somebody famous in a past life. But it's not about that at all, is it? She turned to Morris for support, and he patted her on the shoulder, clearly relishing her level of enthusiasm on the topic. Yes, he said. It's a common misconception. In reality, we were never someone else in a past life. You're always yourself, always the same you, but just in a different form. Each time we come back to this corporeal world, we're simply working on perfecting a different facet of that you. We're all on a journey of perfection, and each lifetime is our opportunity to continue to smooth off the rough edges, as it were. He took a quick sip of his beer and continued. Past life regressions, at its core, is just a way of looking at how far each of us has come on our journey and to gain some insight into what problem or issue is our primary focus for this particular lifetime. You can't tell where you're going until you know where you've been, Megan added. That's what we say, Morris agreed, although I always prefer the way it sounds coming out of your mouth. They both laughed.
So that's how you met Gray? I said to Morris, turning the conversation back to our earlier topic. Through the psychic community? Morris finished his beer and then shook his head. Actually, he was my realtor first. He helped me get this place, he added, waving his free arm at the house. And he was a huge help when the neighborhood tried to block the remodel. They took me to court. There were lawsuits, ugly stuff. Gray absolutely pulled some strings for me on that nonsense. He really knew how to work the system, let me tell you. We were going to have lunch next week, in fact. He had another scheme of some kind he wanted to discuss, but I guess now that won't be happening. We all lapsed in what appeared to be a respectful silence, which Morris finally broke. However, deep down, we all know he was, in fact, a world-class dick. Megan was momentarily shocked by this, and then she burst out laughing, nearly doing a spit take and slapping Morris on the knee. Oh, Dr. Bitterman, what a terrible thing to say. Did you know him? He asked her. No, I didn't, but still, he cut her off. But nothing. Trust me, there's a karmic wheel that guides the souls on this planet, and it does go round. Gray got his ass kicked by the karmic wheel, and probably for good reason. I guess he's got his work cut out for him in the next life, I suggested. I would say the next several lives, Morris added with a smile. There was another conversational silence, and it began to sink in how awkward our seating situation was. I had Megan on one side of me and Pete balancing uncomfortably on the armrest on my other side. As much as I wanted to spend time talking to Megan, it was becoming increasingly clear that this was neither the ideal time nor place. I stood up and stepped away from the couch. You know, that food looks great, I said. I'm going to go grab myself some. Pete wasted no time and slid off the armrest into the spot next to Megan. Dr. Bitterman, it was great to meet you. I put out my hand, and he reached up and grasped my hand, which disappeared within his grip. Nice to meet you, Eli, he said with genuine warmth. And remember, hypnotherapy, it's good for what ails you. Unless what ails you is sleep apnea, he laughed. Yes, you got me there, but I've got that under control. I nodded toward Megan, but she immediately pulled Morris close, and they were already deep in conversation. I gave Pete a wan smile, which he gave right back to me in spades. How's your Hindu shuffle coming, I asked. He shook his head. I've dropped more cards on the floor in the last two weeks than I think I have in my entire life. At this rate, I'll never advance to something really hard like a pharaoh shuffle. I nodded and chuckled along with him and then watched as he glanced over at Megan. He looked very sad. And then a surprising feeling hit me, and it hit me hard. I was suddenly struck with an obvious thought that had, up until that moment, eluded me. If Megan started to feel about me the way I felt about her, I would become a Fred in Pete's mind. I would be mediocre Fred to him, and as much as I didn't want to admit it, I would deserve that nickname. I was no longer hungry, but I headed toward the kitchen just to get away from the trio and clear my head. Stay away from the seafood! A voice barked at me as I picked through the large, catered spread that covered the entire center island in Morris's mammoth kitchen. I looked over to see Franny leaning against a polished wood cabinet. She was using a torn scrap of bread roll to clean the surface of the plastic plate she was holding. She popped the bread into her mouth and chewed contentedly. Which fish? I asked, gesturing to the shrimp salad, which was next to the scallops, which were next to a large plate of artfully displayed clams. All of it. It's a good general life rule. Stay away from the seafood. I'll take hormones and beef over mercury and seafood any day. Of course, in the end, it's all poison. The real killer is sugar, another voice added. Processed sugar, and don't get me started on corn syrup. This opinion had issued forth from Ariana, the harpist from the memorial, who was standing across the center island from me. Her plate was piled high with two dark chocolate brownies, several variations of cookies, and a heavily frosted piece of cake. She was daintily adding two small carrot sticks to the pile when she looked over at me and laughed a high, girlish giggle. 
Do as I say, she said, not as I do. I'm a big believer in moderation in everything, I said, including moderation. I picked up two cookies and added them to my plate. I like the way you think, she said, as she extended a fleshy hand across the counter to me. You're Eli Marks, right? Yes, I am, I said, as I shifted my plate from my right hand to my left to free up a hand for her clasp. He didn't do it, Ariana, Franny said in a bored voice. I did a quick reading. He's clean. There's nothing wrong with getting a second opinion, Franny. Ariana held my hand for a long moment as she stared blankly at the ceiling. Her hand was warm and moist and just a little bit sticky. She squinted for a moment and then furrowed her brow pensively. She released my hand and returned to her meticulous process of adding more layers to the small mountain of food on her plate. Yes, I agree. He didn't do it. I'm glad you both concur on that, I said, as I surreptitiously wiped my right hand on my coat before I picked up my plate again. What I don't understand is why you both seem disappointed to come to that conclusion. Well, I can't speak for Franny, Ariana said, but if you were the one who killed Gray, I'd want to shake your hand. Good riddance to bad garbage, as my mother used to say. Here, here, Franny added. Ariana, I love your bracelet. Ariana paused her hunting and gathering for a moment to look down at the large silver bracelet that fit snugly around her wide right wrist. She held it up to the light. Isn't it delicious? I found it online and just had to have it. It took a lot of cleaning, but in the end, it was worth it. She admired it for another long moment, then returned to picking at the food options on the counter. Does anyone know if the olives are pitted or not? She asked the room at large. She didn't wait for a response, but instead scooped several olives onto her plate, ignoring the one or two that evaded capture and ended up on the floor. She held up one of the green olives she had just plucked and looked over at me. They say the green ones are aphrodisiacs, she said slyly before popping it into her mouth. Her eyes sparkled with a slightly naughty twinkle. I believe you're thinking of M&M's, I said as tactfully as possible. She considered this for a moment, then shrugged and continued chewing. Whatever. She took her completed plate, grabbed a fancy napkin off a stack, and breezed out of the room. I watched her go and then noticed that Franny was watching me watch her. Careful of that one, Franny said darkly. How do you mean? Trouble follows her like kids following an ice cream truck. She clucked her tongue. I'd like to do a reading of you someday she said, deftly changing the subject. I thought you already did that, I said, returning my attention to the amazing spread of food in front of me. That was a quick scan. I mean something more in-depth. You might be surprised by what we find. I'm sure I would be. Where do you work and how do I make an appointment? I only do phone readings these days. They're more conducive to my lifestyle, Franny said, moving to the center island and picking through the tray of cookies until she found one that suited her. Lifestyle being a euphemism for sitting around in my bathrobe all day. That's a lifestyle I can get behind. It's one of the benefits of age, of which there are precious few, she said with a weary smile. She handed me a card which held only her first name and phone number. Thanks again for the ride, and don't worry, tonight there will be no snow. With her chosen cookie in hand, she gave me a smile and a wink and headed back into the living room. In order to keep my distance from Pete and Megan, I took my time contemplating my food options. The crowd in the kitchen had thinned out, and I could now see that the far end of the room opened out into a glass porch. A couple was standing out there, and from their body language and the muffled sounds coming from the room, it was apparent that they were in the throes of a serious argument. I was about to look away so as not to appear a voyeur when I recognized the woman in the pair, and she recognized me. It was Nova, and when she saw me, she immediately stopped the argument and broke into an excited smile. She waved me over and then appeared to laugh when I looked around to make sure I was, in fact, the one she was waving at. She smiled and waved again. So I finished filling my plate, grabbed a fork and napkin, and headed toward the porch. Settle a bet. 
were the first words out of her mouth when I stepped out onto the porch. I hesitated for a moment because not only were the walls all glass, but I was also surprised to discover that the floor was transparent as well. This provided a vertiginous view of the patio two stories below and the lake beyond. I gingerly stepped into the room, which was basically a floating, transparent cube jutting from the house. In order to steady my walk across the small room, my hand instinctively reached out to touch the wall as if driven by some primal force. I did my best not to look down. I will if I can. What's the bet? Nova was standing next to a beefy guy in his late 20s. She held a nearly empty glass of what looked like red wine in her hand. The guy was holding a large can of beer in his. He was wearing a loud Hawaiian shirt, which helped to mask a bulky frame that looked to be the result of many, many nights of holding large cans of beer. His head was covered with stringy blonde hair that barely hid a rapidly receding hairline. That one thing you did the other night where you used all of our psychic powers to find specific cards, she said. That's really a psychic experiment, not a card trick, right? Her companion shook his head derisively. It's a stupid card trick, he grumbled. She looked to me for contradiction. Let him say. I shook my head sadly. Sorry to burst your bubble, I said, but it's a card trick, and yes, not a very sophisticated one at that. So... You don't use psychic powers in your act? She asked quietly. I shook my head again. Not that I know of. And neither did Gray, the guy said, building off my comment. And that's my point. Know what I mean? In three years, I never saw him do anything that wasn't a sham or put on. When are you going to face facts on that? I don't think we've met, I said, having a pretty good idea who this guy was. Did you know Gray? He grunted a response that sounded like, did I ever? This is Boone. He and I work for Gray, Nova said, picking up the introductory slack. Although Boone was with him a lot longer than I was. Were you working with him the other night? Yeah, Boone said. That was going to be my last show with him, know what I mean? And as it turned out, it was. <laughs> he chuckled in a humorless manner. You were going to quit? I figured I might as well before he fired me, know what I mean? I was marveling at his ability to turn virtually any statement into a question when I glanced down and realized I had an untouched plate of food in my hand. I extended the plate to Boone and Nova. Anyone want some? I asked. She passed on it, but Boone didn't hesitate, taking the entire plate from me in one quick movement. I got the sense the other night, I said, looking sadly at my now empty hands, that there was some friction between you and Gray during the show. You were on the other end of his earpiece during the book and magazine bit, right? That was me, Boone said, and he began to snicker. Gray got pissed off because I started demanding a raise right in the middle of the show, which might not have been as professional as he would have liked, he added with a grin. But it was a great time to put the screws to him, know what I mean? You know what they say, when you have them by the balls, their hearts and minds will follow. Yes, I can see that mid-show would make for a perfect time to renegotiate one's contract. I knew he'd never go for it, Boone said, licking his fingertips and then taking another quick swig of beer. I just wanted to screw with him one last time before calling it quits, know what I mean? Why did you want to quit? Boone shrugged, which I soon realized was his go-to form of communication. I don't know, he said finally. I was getting tired of sitting in a cramped little room listening to Gray screw people. And he was a pain in the ass. Plus, my DJ business is really starting to take off. Boone is an amazing DJ, Nova added. Seems like a lot of people didn't like Gray, I said. You got that right, Boone agreed taking one final gulp from the beer can and crushing the empty in his fist. Do you think anyone disliked him enough to kill him? Boone gave me a long look. Well, yes, Columbo, he said. Obviously one person did. That's why he's dead. Know what I mean? He snorted and shook his head contemptuously. Can I get you some more wine? I asked Nova, deftly changing the topic away from just how stupid I was. She smiled and held out her glass. That would be sweet she said. I think this was a Shiraz, but, you know, whatever. Before I could take the glass, Boone had moved in and cut off the exchange, taking the glass from her. You've had enough, he said curtly. 
No, I haven't, she said, trying to pull the glass back. I've only had two. You've had four, by my count, and I haven't even been keeping close track. And how many beers have you had, she asked, still struggling to regain ownership of the wine glass. Me and the amount of beer I've had are not the problem, he said. I don't get stupid when I drink beer. That's because you start out stupid, she said. In fact, I think the beer actually makes you smarter. I started backing away. I'll just let you two discuss this on your own, I said, although I'm not sure either one of them heard me. The volume of their voices was still on the upswing when I shut the glass door and the muffled sounds continued to echo and reverberate in the glass cube as I made my way through the kitchen. I considered grabbing more food, but that same idea must have occurred to a lot of people simultaneously because the counter that held the catering was now surrounded too deep on all sides. I squeezed my way through the kitchen and was turning to head back to the living room when I slammed into a woman who was just coming around the corner. Oh, excuse me, I said, jumping back to let her pass. It was then that I realized it was Megan. There you are, she said. You went to get food and you never came back. Are you avoiding me? She gave me a playful slap on the arm. Yes, I said, a bit tongue-tied. I mean, no. I ran into some other people back there on that porch thing. I pointed vaguely in the general direction of the porch and nearly poked a passing woman right in the eye. Oh, sorry. Megan and I each squeezed back against our respective walls to let the woman through. The woman gave me a careful stare as she wiggled between us on her way to the living room. Oh, I love that porch. Isn't this house just wild? She said, smiling widely. It's so open and clear. Yes, but you know what they say about people who live in glass houses. They go through a lot of Windex? It took me a second to realize that she was joking with me, and then I recognized the humor in what she had said. I laughed, and she joined me. Then I immediately realized that the laugh I had emitted might have been out of proportion to the quality of her joke. In fact, I'm sure it was. So I throttled the laugh down, and then it petered out awkwardly. We stood there quietly for a moment as people struggled to get past and around us. Maybe we should find someplace else to talk, Megan suggested, where we won't be in the way. Without waiting for a response, she turned and headed back toward the living room, but where everyone else was turning left, she veered right. The flow of traffic prevented me from following her immediately, and it was all I could do to not get pulled into the undertow that was sucking people back into the living room. As I struggled to follow Megan, I recognized Clive Albans across the room. He was surrounded by a group of young women, and it looked like he was demonstrating scotch and soda for them. They laughed and applauded his efforts when he finished the trick. He spotted me and gave me a smile and a wink. I smiled back at him and continued to work at making my way through the throng. I finally broke through the pack and turned right down a short hallway. By the time I finally caught up with Megan, she was seated comfortably on one of the clear plexiglass steps that led to the second floor. She patted the space next to her invitingly, and I sat down. So, how did your uncle like his reading? she asked. Oh, I said, surprised by the question. It was great. He loved it. Very informative. I hoped that my response sounded more truthful than it actually was. She sighed and visibly relaxed. Oh, good, she said. I'm so new to this and completely clueless as to whether or not my psychic gifts are in any way helping people. So I'm glad he was happy. Yes, I agreed, trying desperately to come up with something positive he had said about the experience. Finally, it came to me. The dimes, I said quickly. The thing about Aunt Alice leaving him dimes as a symbol of their love, that was dead on. He was very impressed by that. Oh, good, good, she said. That was such a persistent image, stronger than any of the others. I'm glad it had meaning for him. Yeah, it, it really did, I said honestly. So, where's Pete? Networking? She smiled. No, he went back to the car to get me some ibuprofen. You have a headache? She shrugged. Sort of. We sat there for a few moments, listening to the music from the other room. So did you and Pete enjoy the memorial service? I asked. 
She sat quietly for what seemed like a long time before speaking. I don't know. It's weird. He wanted to come to be supportive and all. She shook her head and looked down at her feet. We're in such a funny, in-between place right now. She looked up at me. Her eyes were amazing, blue and literally sparkling. You've gone through a divorce, so you must know what it's like. Yeah, I agreed. I'm sure in some ways every divorce is different, and in some ways they're exactly the same. So how did you make that final break to not being a couple anymore? I thought about this for a few moments. Well, I said, it helped that my wife was sleeping with someone else, and then she moved in with him. Those two things really made it easier to call it quits. She saw me smile, and then she laughed and gave me another playful slap on the arm. You're very funny, she said. You're not so bad yourself. I don't know about that, she said quietly. Then the most amazing thing happened. She leaned against me. Not her full weight, but enough. Just the right amount, her shoulder against mine. I sat perfectly still, and for a few moments, she leaned against me. And it was the nicest thing I had felt in a very long time. And for at least that instant... I stopped feeling like I was a mediocre Fred. She was separated, practically divorced. I had not come between them. I wouldn't be breaking up anything that wasn't already broken. And she was leaning against me. If you can have a lifetime in a moment, I did. And then I heard the following five amazing words. Can you take me home? I was stunned for a moment, frozen, unable to respond. And then it began to dawn on me that Megan had somehow said those five words without moving her lips. Plus, she had altered her voice and made it sound like her voice was coming from in front of me. Then, much later than I should have, I realized that someone else had said it. We both looked up to see Nova standing in front of us. She had been crying. Running mascara had given her a look of a very attractive goth raccoon. She stood there, sniffling, her slight shoulders heaving up and down, and then she spoke again in one continuous run-on sob. I want to go home and I shouldn't drive because obviously I've had too much to drink and I'm not that stupid and Boom won't take me because he's an ass and the booze is free here and he wants to stay until Dr. Bitterman shuts down the bar and it's been a long day, a long week, a long fucking year and I shouldn't drive and I want to go home, so will you drive me? I looked from Megan to Nova and back to Megan who was staring at the girl with a real sadness in her eyes. Of course he will, she said softly. Of course I will, I echoed immediately. Eli will get you home safely, Megan added. Absolutely, I concurred. Thank you, Nova said, using her sleeve to wipe her nose. I pulled a handkerchief from my pocket and offered it to her, and then stood up. I looked down at Megan, who was smiling at me. Well, I said, not sure how to bring this moment to a conclusion. I'll call you sometime, she said. That would be great. I said, and then Nova blew her nose loudly into my handkerchief, effectively killing any romance that might have been in the moment. Five minutes later, we were in my car and pulling away from the house. Nova's crying had turned to sniffling, and she looked very small in the passenger seat. I gave the bizarre glass home one last look as we headed away down the street. Lights were on in every room, and you could see people moving about like ants in a multi-million dollar ant farm. Within the crowd, I recognized one lone still figure. Boone was standing on the glass porch, another beer in his hand. He appeared to be watching my car with great intensity as we drove away. <laughs> That was there was a lot of there were a lot of murder suspects in there that were chapter. Certainly chapter we nine, got, heavy on the murder suspects. I think so. We got we met Bitterman, the ex-football player. Yes. Uh, we met Ariana more up close and personal. We met Nova and her boyfriend Boone, who works for Gray. I, I don't know. Any it's, one of them, really. Of them, uh, it's a horse of peace at this point. It really, really, really is. I can hardly wait till next episode. Well, you're gonna have to. Mostly um, just to find out what it's numbered. <laughs> 
Uh, before we wrap up this show, uh, I want to say be sure to listen to next time. I think we'll be listening to Julie Eng, who is delightful. Uh, and we have other great guests coming up. We mentioned Jay Johnson talking about Harry Anderson. We've got John Carney. We've got uh, Mike Caveney, Tina Leonard. We've got Steve Spill uh, on deck. Uh, but anyway, thanks to Dick Cavett and his wife uh, for, for making that interview possible. Martha, if you're listening, we're very grateful. It was the highlight really for two guys out of Minnesota to get a chance to talk to Dick Cavett. Just a delight. You can follow Dick Cavett on Twitter uh, at the Dick Cavett. And we also put up uh, several links in the show notes of past magic performances. Yeah, uh, lots of good ones. Uh, Di Vernon is there. Slidini is there. Even Johnny Carson performing some magic for you. Plus, we found a video of Dick Cavett himself performing magic as well. So there's a lot of good stuff in the show notes. Indeed. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time for Chapter 10 of The Ambitious Card. Please give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening to. A good rating. Give yeah, us a bad rating you please. give it to yourself. Absolutely. But they tell me it's very important to leave ratings because apparently that triggers an algorithm and then it helps people find the show. Yeah. And don't miss an episode, folks. At the very least, you want to catch the next one just to find out what the number is going to be. So hit that subscribe button, will you? To wrap things up this time, let's re-listen to one of the stories Dick Cavett mentioned on this episode. But in this case, it's told from the point of view of Groucho Marx himself. Here it is. There were times when I used to wear a, a mustache and there were times when I didn't. I got tired of wearing it and I would take it off because if I didn't have a mustache on, people didn't bother me in the street. So one night I went to the Winter Garden and the Houdini was appearing there and I was sans mustache. That means without. <laughs> Gotta watch yourself in the Winter Garden. At any rate, I'm sitting in the second row, and Houdini is now doing a trick. He would take some needles and put them in his mouth and a spool of thread, and then he would thread the needles. So he asked for a volunteer out of the audience. Now, who do you think went up on the stage? <laughs> and he opened his mouth wide. I want to prove that there's no trickery to this trick. What do you see in there? And I said, Pyrrhea. <laughs> and left the stage. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at Eli Marks Mysteries. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening.